0: Welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have real, honest, smart, and sometimes even hilarious conversations about co-parenting, separation, and divorce, and all that goes along with that. I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, Certified Life and Relationship Coach, and happily divorced mom who helps women decide if they should stay in or leave their marriages, and then guides them through the process one step at a time. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. I feel like all of my guests are very special. (laughs) I wouldn't have them on if they weren't. That's the thing. Um, I rarely have anyone on my podcast that I don't know and have some kind of intimate relationship or experience with because it's important to me that I bring you people that I know and that I care about and I care about their message. And today is no exception. Um, Today, I'm interviewing a woman named Annie Grace. And since you have the best name, Annie Grace, you can't just call her Annie, you have to call her Annie Grace. And Annie is the creator of And the writer, the author of the book, This Naked Mind, and This Naked Mind is now her, it's her company, it's her organization. I found Annie because I, about hmm, five or six months ago, I started very more seriously than usual questioning my relationship with alcohol. After my divorce, I I was my my ex husband um, doesn't drink, so I never drank in our marriage. And as soon as I got out, that was kind of the first thing that I did. And it over ten years, it had increased over time steadily. About five years ago, I started. I was questioning it. Um, I was in a relationship in which alcohol was a predominant part of our relationship, I had really started to question it back then. And here's the thing. I'm surrounded by sober alcoholics and I'm surrounded by people in AA. Uh, As you guys know, I'm, um, you know, I'm no stranger to 12 step programs. And so about five years ago, I was really questioning my relationship with alcohol. And the only place I knew to go was AA And I called all my sober friends and I was like, I need you to take me to a meeting. And they were like, really? Okay. (laughs) And they took me to, I went to a few different meetings um, because I I know that that's what you do. You you go to a bunch of different meetings. You don't just rely on the personalities or um, the stories in one meeting. You check out a bunch of different meetings. And I did. I did not relate to the alcoholic story. I did not relate to alcoholism as my, being my thing. I knew that I was probably drinking too much and, and I knew that there was something about it that wasn't that I couldn't control, but it was it was becoming more and more of a daily habit practice. Uh, I don't really know how to call it but that. At that time, I was just drinking too much and I wasn't happy about it. But the only place that I knew of to get help, I didn't relate to. I didn't feel like I belonged there. And so it went on for another five years until someone recommended Annie Grace's book, This Naked Mind, to me about, I don't know, four or five months ago. And I read this book and it opened my eyes so widely and it, it blew my mind. It totally fucking blew my mind. Uh, and I quit drinking uh, right, right right, around that time. <laughs> as soon as I started reading the book, I was like, oh, This is why I feel all the things that I feel. This is why I am so depressed, why I have so much anxiety. This is why I can't sleep. This is why I keep drinking more and more and more and more, and it's not getting better. This is why I feel like I have a problem with alcohol, but I don't feel like I'm, quote, an alcoholic. It was very eye-opening, and so I... I started following Annie religiously, and I joined her programs and all sorts of other things. (laughs) Um, And so, and then I asked her to be on my podcast. And Annie has her own podcast, so let me give you a little bit of a background about Annie. She grew up in a one-room log cabin without running water or electricity. (laughs) How about that? Um, Just outside of Aspen, Colorado. And Annie discovered a passion for marketing. And after graduating with a master's of science in marketing, she dove into corporate life. At the age of 26, Annie was the youngest vice president in a multinational company, and her drinking career began in earnest. At 36, in a global C-level marketing role, she was responsible for marketing in 28 countries and drinking almost two bottles of wine a night. Knowing she needed a change, but unwilling to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma, Annie set out to find a painless way to regain control. Annie no longer drinks and has never been happier. She left her executive role to write her first book, This Naked Mind, that I just told you about, uh, and to share this naked mind with the world. In her free time, Annie loves to ski, travel, and enjoy her beautiful family. Annie now lives with her husband, two sons, and a daughter in the Colorado Mountains. And the conversation that Annie and I had was really about a lot about sort of the prevalence of drinking in divorce and in mommy culture. So, without further ado, here is my very special guest, Annie Grace.
1: Annie Grace,
0: thank you so much for coming on and talking to my peoples about this Naked Mind and the alcohol experiment.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much, Kate, for having me.
0: You you have changed my life. So that the reason that I wanted to have you on this podcast was because your work in particular changed my life in a huge way. So I'm so grateful to you for that. Um. I am currently, I'm actually looking at my app right now, I'm currently 81 days alcohol Yay. free. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm excited to check my app. So um, I just want to ask you to give a brief sort of overview of what is the alcohol experiment and this naked mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the this naked mind was my first book and it was really born out of my own Uh, attempts to free myself. And it was one of those things where I didn't drink a ton in my early twenties, but then by my early thirties found myself feeling really deprived or like I was missing out, even if I didn't drink for a single day. And I would try to do all the rules, all the things, you know, nothing until after five o'clock or nothing except wine or nothing except beer or only two. Mm -hmm. And I just find myself being able to keep them for a day or two and then breaking them and saying, you know, whatever, and just going back to it. And causing myself a lot of internal stress where a lot of my thinking started to be around drinking. (laughs) And that was frustrating. And so I started asking myself, well, why is this changed? Why is this different than it used to be? I mean, I didn't used to think alcohol was key to relaxation or having a good time. I didn't even used to think about it much at all. And so I did something kind of weird but I didn't know it at the time. And I stopped trying to stop drinking. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to research this and understand why things have changed. Because mm-hmm. there has to be an answer here. It doesn't make any sense to me logically. And so that's what I did. I stopped trying to stop drinking. I I all the noise around it went away because I was no longer putting limits on myself. And I just made myself the single commitment that I was going to get to the bottom of why things were different. Yeah. And over the course of the next like 13 months, that's what I did. And I learned so much about just the substance of alcohol about how our brains work about the subconscious mind and at the end of that journey I really was like okay well this is great and I told my husband you know if you want to drink with me again tonight's tonight because after this I'm not drinking anymore and he did not believe me he was <laughs>
0: <laughs> did, he, did he know that you were doing all this research at, over the prior 13 months or had you kind of been doing that on the DL
1: no, he did know, I think though, but I always do stuff like I mean I i right. 've tried to start like twenty five businesses, and i 'm like, "Oh, this is the thing, and I get you know excited about it, and then it goes mm-hmm. away. so I think that he just thought it was like that you know? right
0: like, right, just another <laughs> thing that, another thing that annie 's like super psych- super psyched about <laughs> exactly <laughs> right or geeking out about.
1: that was the the really turning point, and mm-hmm. um, I will say that about forty five days i don 't know exactly, I wish I knew exact dates, but it was between thirty and forty five days later. I started really wondering, like, okay, well, you know, maybe my friends are right, maybe drinking is fun, maybe it's a good time, like, what's going on? And so I got really curious, but because I'd spent so much time researching and really getting into sort of the scientific method of the thing, I said, you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do a mini-experiment and I'm going to lock myself in my room and I'm going to take away all the external stimulus, you know, even the Netflix, because mm-hmm. one thing that happens so often is we, we've we completely coupled and married alcohol with all the pleasant experiences in our lives. So it's really hard for us to tell if it's the alcohol that's fun or if it, we would be having a lot of fun anyway. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even if you looked at children's birthday parties, they're not drinking, they're having fun. And that was one of those moments of like, huh? Hmm what's what is going on here so i said okay i'm i'm not going to do anything with like external stimulus i'm just going to sit in a room drink a bottle of wine videotape myself and see if it really is everything society has come to believe it is and more importantly if it's important to me in my life and through that experiment i <laughs> really <laughs> definitively knew that it wasn't i mean there was nothing Nothing in there for me. And it was right. so clear. And I just really left it behind from that point forward without any cravings or any missing out. It was a very, very freeing thing to know that no, I just really coupled this with all sorts of things that were pleasant anyway.
0: Yeah. I find it so fascinating. One of the things, you know, the reason that I came to your work, and I, I think one of the reasons I gravitated to your work so much was that I also geek out on neuroscience. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff. So when I was reading your book, I was like, "Yes!" <laughs> like, give me the cold hard facts and the and the and the science and the data. I love that stuff, and I'm fascinated by how the brain works and you know hormonal shifts and all of that stuff. But one of the reasons that I needed something like the alcohol experiment and this naked mind was because I was raised by an alcoholic, like an actual you know AA now sober alcoholic. I'm surrounded by most of my best friends throughout my life have become sober, have gotten sober. Um, My ex-husband is sober, you know, all AA people, right? And so my experience of, quote, alcoholism has always been this the AA version of alcoholism. And when it came time for me to start questioning my relationship with alcohol, the only place I knew to go was AA. And I would, I, you know, I called, this is about five years ago. I called a bunch of my sober friends and I was like, Hey, I think I need to go to a meeting. And they were like, huh? Okay. And they brought me to a meetings and I sat there and I was like, I don't, I don't relate to this. I feel like Uh, I feel like I'm questioning my relationship to alcohol, but I don't relate to this experience. I don't relate to this story. So I guess I'm fine. And then I kept drinking Mm -hmm. for five years Mm -hmm. because there's always, for me, it's always been, I think for most of us in our, in our society, there's this, there's this binary. Right, you're either this or you're that. Can you and you talk about that a lot in your book, and and why that can be so damaging?
1: A very similar experience to you, where um, a best friend of mine went to AA, got sober, and I was like, whoa, 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 wait a second, hold the phone. We drink together all the time. This, what does this mean about me and my drinking? Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, Annie, I've learned new stuff. I've learned that I was born this way, that I'm an alcoholic, and you're very clearly not. So I use that as permission to go ahead and keep drinking. Right, um, I think that even if you don't reach the point where you're actually having that conversation, Mm
0: -hmm. the
1: idea of what an alcoholic is gets people to let themselves off the hook because according to the Center for Disease Control of excessive drinkers, so this is people who are drinking excessively, Mm -hmm. only 10% of them are actually clinically addicted to alcohol. Mm -hmm. So we have 90% of excessive drinkers that fall into this gray area. And uh, they're not gonna feel comfortable at an AA meeting because they're not gonna relate to, you know, falling down the stairs and getting a black eye a few times a month or some of these different stories that happen when you are literally drinking, you know, morning till night, or it has gotten such a hold on you where you can't stop. That wasn't my experience. I could stop. I just felt miserable when I stopped. And another way that I like to look at is the difference between like a real deep physical and chemical addiction and just a psychological and emotional addiction, which is really where, you know, again, the 90% live is in this, it's in my feelings. Like I don't feel like the day is complete. If I'm not having a glass of wine, I feel grumpy. If I'm not allowing myself to, I feel like I'm on this constant uh, deprivation or alcohol diet and that feeling isn't sustainable. So I end up drinking again, but I'm not going through shakes or withdrawals or hallucinations or delirium tremens, you know? And Mm -hmm. so there isn't really anything for, for that group of people. And interestingly, that group of people is the majority of drinkers. So it's (laughs) a small group of people. It's almost everyone. I mean, if you think about everyone, you know, there is a, um, so and even the medical and scientific community have moved on from the term alcoholic because it's Mm -hmm. ill-defined. It's not, you know, it's not really in the diagnostic and statistical manual, the DSM. And in the DSM, they use this term alcohol use disorder of which there's 11 questions and you can go through and say, okay, where am I? And, you know, mild, moderate, whatever. Um, Two of those 11 questions are, do you need to drink more now than you used to to get the same effect? is one of them. Everybody (laughs) I know who drinks would say yes to that. And the question is, is there ever a time when you wish you would be drinking less than you are now? Like, do you ever have moments where you feel like you drank too much? And again, we all have those, oh, I overdid it last night.
0: Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh.
1: and so if you look at it like that, then the majority of our population has some form of alcohol use disorder. But because we've put this terrifying alcoholic, you know, no cure, lifelong disease, meetings for the rest of your life label on the thing, people. Are even ashamed to question it because we feel like if you say, man, I think I'm drinking too much, you can't say that in casual conversation without people being like, Oh my gosh, do you have a problem? Are you an right. alcoholic?
0: Are you an alcoholic? Do we, do we... right, exactly? Yeah.
1: Loaded. Yeah. It's yep. just loaded. And it's it's really unfortunate because we don't do that with anything else. You know, we can question how much you know fat we're eating or carbs or sugar or how much exercise we're getting, all of these other things. And we should be able to question this just as easily. But Because of this idea of alcoholics and this, like you said, binary, um, we've made it so that it's, it's really loaded. It's this or that, which is completely not actually true.
0: Right. it's like, if someone's, if I said to someone, um, I think I've been eating too much, um, sugar lately, or I think I've been eating too many carbs lately. They wouldn't be like, oh my God, do you have a problem? Right. It just right. be like, yeah, right? Exactly. They'd be and like, yeah, me too. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Ooh, what does it mean, right? So, what is the truth? What is the truth about alcohol itself as a as a substance that we consume into our we put into our bodies.
1: So, I mean, there's so many aspects to that question. We could we could definitely dive into a few of them that are really relevant, especially I think to your work, and mm-hmm. um, a few of the things that are just definitively true is that when alcohol is being used, alcohol is addictive, and that's one thing that's yeah. true across the board. And well, it's that's the,
0: that's sort of what I was getting at. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to like, you know, lead <laughs> you a roundabout way to that.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean it's it's amazing though. It's one of those things that we just don't necessarily realize. You well, know what
0: we believe is, right? What we've been taught to believe is that there are addicts and there are non-addicts. Mm-hmm. Not that the substance itself is addictive no matter who you are.
1: Exactly. And that's
0: that's the truth, right? Mm-hmm
1: absolutely and of course it begs the question well why then do i see some people just take it or leave it their whole lives when other people you know very quickly fall into a state of drinking way more than they um than is healthy for them and why do i see this manifesting in all these different ways if the substance is equally addictive to all human beings right and the answer to that question there's a lot of nuance to this because people have different experiences they have different religious backgrounds they have different sort of internal guardrails but at the crux of most of it is this a place of do you drink for stress or not yeah because alcohol is more addictive when the body and the brain is stressed one of the things that happens is alcohol actually raises alcohol overstimulates and this is true for any addictive substance the pleasure circuit of the brain mm-hmm. and it releases artificially high levels of dopamine mm-hmm. and what those two things do in the brain are they <laughs> signal a bunch of things one of which is okay, we need to balance that back out. So over time, alcohol can actually make you feel much, have much less fun and pleasure in your life than you were beforehand because Mm -hmm. your brain has to counteract that. But another thing that happens is Alcohol is an anesthetic, so it's going to numb pain and it's going to numb um, both physical and emotional pain. So if you combine these two things and you're living your life in a place of pain, whether it's childhood trauma and then all of a sudden you're 13 or 14 and somebody finally hands you a beer at a party and you drink it and for the first time you're like, wow, things finally feel right in the world. Um, Then you can be very quickly addicted to it because it feels like something you haven't felt before Now it goes away very quickly and there's a lot of very negative manifestations of that um, As we know, but that is the hook, right? That is the thing Equally a very good friend of mine Jolene Park, you know, she had what we would call a occasional Relationship with alcohol, you know, she'd drink a few times a week maybe Mm -hmm. uh, with friends girlfriends going out and then she got divorced And about two weeks after her divorce, when she was in so much pain, she saw a bottle of wine in her kitchen and she said, why not? And she went and she opened it. And it was the first time in two weeks where she started to feel normal. And it was because it's an anesthetic. And that launched her on, uh, I think it was almost 12 years of drinking at a level that was really you know, not comfortable for her in her life. And again, she calls herself a gray area drinker. She never reached a point of rock bottom, but it was certainly something where it wasn't serving her anymore. And she had drank for a decade before that even happened because alcohol is addictive when you drink it on a very repeated basis every single day in, you know, and if you're just drinking on a social basis occasionally, but all of a sudden when you start to self-medicate or drink for stress, there's always something stressful. There's always a reason to pour that drink. I know my relationship changed with alcohol after the birth of my second son. It had been occasional, take it or leave it. And then it had gotten pretty, pretty regular through my career, but it was still mostly out and about and stuff like that. And then Um, We had one baby and it was still okay, but then that second baby, I got really bad postpartum depression and it Mm. kind of blindsided me because I had been depressed in my 17, 18, 19 years old. And so I was like really ready for it. They always said, watch out for babies. But then I sailed through my first pregnancy and my first son's early uh, babyhood. So Mm. I was like, okay, I'm set. And then, so that second one came along and I was not prepared. And it was through that experience that my drinking really changed because I started just very subconsciously realizing that this this dulled pain, this numbed pain. And so even though, yeah, the pain was back the next day and it was significantly worse and I was pouring all of these other unpleasant things into my life like hangovers and anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, in the moment, it really numbed the pain. And so it became something that I habitually would reach for. And only looking back on it, can I kind of untangle that? But- yeah. In the moment it just felt like, okay, this is this is the thing to do. Yeah. And it was at that point. And if you talk to most people whose relationship with alcohol has gotten to a place where they don't feel comfortable. And again, I'm not talking about someone in a rock bottom situation or someone, you know, who feels like they need to walk into a meeting. I'm just talking about where in their heart they feel that this is suddenly not congruent with who they want to be. Mm-hmm. In their heart, they feel that, okay, something here is amiss. There's I feel a little bit I was in the driver's seat for a while. Now I might be in the passenger seat and I'm not sure that I like where this vehicle is headed. And it doesn't matter how that manifests on the outside. I mean, when I stopped drinking, people said, but I never even saw you drunk. I can't believe you stopped. You know, you're not the one I was worried about sort of thing. And so it, it doesn't matter how it manifests necessarily. It's just like what in your heart is true for you. And often if you say when, when someone starts questioning it to that degree, You say, okay, where tell me your journey. There's a moment where they started using alcohol to self-medicate, whether it was just for parenting or for divorce or Mm -hmm. for something else, even a even a physical, you know, accident, car accident that they were rehabilitating for. And and that line is pretty definitive. And it really explains why some people, you know, can just my my Aunt Shirley, she can drink a glass of Wine occasionally with her dinner. Her entire life, she's ninety years old. She's never had a problem with it, and um, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean that the people who are drinking uh, more than they want to were ever born with it, or have some sort of gene, or mm-hmm. some sort of predisposition, or some sort of addictive personality. None of those things have been scientifically proven to be true, and it really creates this. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm not even going to question it because my only option is I'm an alcoholic or I'm not.
0: Right. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's exactly where I was. I mean, my, you know, my story is so similar that I, you know, I was married to a sober uh, my my sober alcoholic. My my ex-husband had been sober for at this point 20 god, almost 29 years I think he's been sober this year. Um no, 28. And so, you know, we just never had alcohol in the house. I never drank. It was wasn't part of our daily life and it was after my divorce that I started going out and drinking and having fun and as my son got older, my son has a very severe um, ADHD diagnosis. And so as he got older and things got like really, really crazy and really difficult with parenting, that just became it, it. And I can, I can track that. I can track it from my divorce and then through early, through parenting my son through like probably first, second, third grade things just escalating. And it did, it took 10 years uh for it for me to finally be like uh ah, okay this has gotten this has gotten bad mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and um so i want to talk about that sort of alcohol and transitions and alcohol and depression in particular and you have uncovered or researched and and talk about this a lot the 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 reality of what of of how alcohol, what the, what it does to you hormonally around depression and anxiety. Can you explain a little bit about that? The science there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what I started talking about a little bit earlier and we can Mm -hmm. go a lot more into detail with it is this idea that alcohol overstimulates the parts of your brain that make you feel good. Mm -hmm. So the pleasure circuit and um, over, you know, produces artificially high levels of dopamine. Right. You know, the problem with that is that our brains are they're responsive. They always need to be in balance or maintain homeostasis. And so when something happens, you know this in your body, when you get too hot, you start to sweat to cool yourself down. If you get too cold, you start to shiver. The same sort of thing happens. So if you have this artificially high level of dopamine being released or artificial stimulation of your pleasure center, and you could tell me, oh, well, Annie, that's, that's great. I mean, obviously, that's why we drink. That's exactly why we want that feeling. Perfect.
0: Mm-hmm, uh, right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, tell me yeah. something.
0: Um,
1: but the thing is, is that your brain, because it needs to maintain balance, it actually reduces uh, produces a counter chemical, and that chemical is called dynorphin, and it sounds familiar because it's the you know kind of opposite, if you will, of endorphin. It's it's a similar thing, but it actually reduces the pleasure levels in your brain and your brain's ability to feel pleasure. And dynorphin, while alcohol can leave your body relatively quickly, dynorphin, because it's a natural thing and your body's not like, okay, this is a toxin, get it out immediately. It doesn't purge it as quickly. And so if you're drinking every single day, these levels of dynorphin can build up over time. Even further, your brain, because it's so smart and so responsive, can start to pre-release certain chemicals. Mm. So if you're going into a situation where you always were drinking. And for example, I remember so vividly if I was the designated driver one night and we'd all be going out and I just knew like, okay, I'm not going to have a good time. And part of that is, yeah, if you tell yourself you're not going to have a good time, you're not going to have a good time. Right. But another part of it is that, you know, my brain was anticipating alcohol and when i wasn't giving it alcohol already i had this counter chemical that was bringing me down but even worse these ever present levels of dynorphin in the brain reduces your ability to feel pleasure from all sorts of normal natural things so something like you know getting coffee with friends or going out to eat or you know even relaxing with a good book used to just bring a really nice pleasurable feeling but suddenly you have this ever present dynorphin that it can't break through and so It is very real when people say, well, it's just not going to be fun if we're not drinking. Well, that becomes true because (laughs) of this chemical reaction that I've been talking about. Now, over time, what happens is it's a law of diminishing returns. So as you build your tolerance, um, your body gets more and more efficient at turning down this artificial stimulation. That's what tolerance is. You need more alcohol to do the same thing and then it produces more dynorphin. And over time... You This will diminish and diminish and diminish. So at the beginning stages, you can say, oh, it's not that much fun without a drink, but then you have a few drinks and you're having fun again. Near the end stages, it's not that much fun without a drink. You have a few drinks and you're still not having fun. And I think for me, this is when I really started to question things. This is like, I'm not feeling it. Even after a bottle of wine, I don't feel it. Like it's not doing what it was supposed to do. And so then eventually you're not, even the alcohol isn't making you feel good and it isn't even bringing you back up to normal. Um, and then eventually, and that's why there's such an incredible link between, you know, alcohol and depression.
0: Yeah. It's, I can't tell you the number of nights. I mean, that that I would come home sobbing. Like I would, I would have had a perfectly fine time, right, drinking and then I would come home and I would just be sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and sobbing for you know whatever reason, right? And it's so interesting when you when when I started reading your books and and listening to you and learning this, I was like, "Oh my god. <laughs> that was my I'm a, I'm a highly sensitive person too, right? So my I get really strongly and deeply affected by all chemicals whether they're internal or external and I think that I was getting so hit with this with this you know lowering effect of the dynorphin that by the end of the night I was fucking miserable
1: it isn't ever you know one thing I mean there's so many things Mm -hmm. happening but Mm -hmm. so alcohol is interesting because it's both a stimulant and a depressant there's Mm -hmm. very few substances that are both of those things in one thing okay well how does that work right and the stimulant, um, you've heard of blood alcohol concentration, BAC, because it's what you have to worry about yep. if you pull pulled over. <laughs> yep. um, I remember literally having a breathalyzer in my car to make sure that I was never dri- driving over the limit because oh I was God. serious about my drinking and equally serious about not going to jail.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> you took it one but, step further than I did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, no. it was It was a... It was a very, I, I'm nothing without a method, right? So oh my
0: God. I, I should have had one, by the way. <laughs> I should have
1: had one in my car. When your blood alcohol content is rising and this happens, you know, for 20 to 30 minutes for one drink, that's when you feel the tipsy, euphoric sort of inhibitions dropping feelings. So those are the good feelings. Those happen for 20 to 30 minutes for one drink. And then your body it says, whoa, 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 this is a toxin. We need to do everything possible to get this out. In fact, this is incredible. But your body stops almost all other processes in order to purge alcohol. So if you have food in your gut that's digesting, your body will stop digesting it in order to like oh make alcohol God. priority one, which is one of the reasons that alcohol can lead to weight gain. Because and it can
0: <laughs> if I did you, not know that. Somehow I missed that. That's that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's crazy. I mean, it also if you are you know your liver needs to release glucose in order to maintain kind of um, the proper balance between. Insulin and just keep your blood sugar levels up, and alcohol like your liver will stop doing that, so your blood sugar can just dive. And your blood sugar is another reason that you can just feel so awful
0: mm. because
1: your your liver is trying to purge the alcohol, so it won't release the glucose that you need. And then it signals to your brain that you're still hungry, even though you have a full meal in your stomach. So then you go out for you know the three a.m. Taco Bell run, <laughs> and all of the right. things kind of come to to mean that um, alcohol really is very very severely linked to weight gain, but that's an entire tangent to bring me back to where we were talking about. So it's a stimulant for the first 20 to 30 minutes, and then it starts to to fall. Your BAC starts to fall. And the kicker is that it starts to fall for two to three hours for one drink. And the falling BAC is restlessness, irritability, tiredness, uh, not be, feeling comfortable in your own skin, feeling anxious, but you don't necessarily associate that with, oh, this was caused by the drink. Your brain only remembers, well, it was the drink that made me feel good. So about 20 to 30 minutes after your first drink, you reach for another drink. Finally, sort of at the end of the night, your BAC will you know have risen to a certain point. Now it's only at, and I, I don't have the number in front of me, but at a certain level, those nice feelings aren't there anymore. And right. that's, they're all negative. And that's where you have angry, weepy, all of those sorts of things, because there's nothing, there's nothing at all positive in there anymore. It really leads you into that really negative place.
0: Mm. And then it
1: falls. I mean, it can fall well into the next day. Your BAC can still be falling.
0: Oh yeah,
1: We wake up kind of tipsy still, but we don't feel good and we feel miserable. And so you're, you're trading off, you know, if you maybe total, if you can drink I don't know if you can drink five drinks and you have twenty minutes a drink. If you can get a hundred minutes of pleasant feelings for really, you know, five drinks, two hours a drink, you're you're talking about ten hours of unpleasant feelings, yeah. and that goes well into the next day. So, and that's that's a conservative estimate. It can be three to four hours. I mean, and then so you wake up feeling, you know, really miserable, wondering why you were crying your eyes out the night before, and then not really saying, okay, well, actually. The alcohol is responsible for this. You're usually just thinking, okay, well, I can't wait till five p.m. because then I can take the edge off this hangover.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing is that it becomes then, you know, you do that for ten years. You do that every day (laughs) for ten years, as I did. You know, it just kind of becomes increasing and increasing. And by five of that, it's like you know, four o'clock. Well, you know, it's close enough, and and then you go to bed and start the cycle all over again, over and over and over again. Absolutely, and we can see this in so many other aspects of our of our society. You know, I just always think of angry, drunken frat boys getting into fistfights.
1: Yep. Right. You know, you
0: could, like you combine you combine this with toxic masculinity, and you've got this beautiful cesspool of you know of boys beating each other, beating <laughs> the shit out of each other. Right. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of the things that happened for me is that when i stopped drinking i suddenly had to be with all these feelings and i was really blindsided because i actually didn't know until i stopped drinking the root of why i had been drinking and then once i stopped and i took it away i it was it was bad <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like and so is there can you talk about that at all is there anything that people can do to sort of help with that or I mean, I think there's there's a
1: few key sort of pillars, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one is just to understand that we have been terribly misled in our society to believe that life is without problems. And I blame mm-hmm. it, you know, a huge amount on marketing in general. <laughs> yeah. Every time you te- turn on your television, it's basically saying, if you experience any discomfort, we have an answer for that. Mm-hmm. And so I think especially like, There's just this idea that there should be a switch for everything, that if we feel any discomfort, we should be able to switch it off. And alcohol has provided that switch to a large extent. You know, in the moment of the feeling, we can switch it off with a drink because it is an anesthetic. Interestingly, alcohol used to be used in surgeries um, until it was deemed too toxic back in, like, (laughs) 1860s.
0: Right? Insane.
1: Right. And we found safer things with which to operate on ourselves. But now we just drink it voluntarily. Um, But... (sighs) Yeah, it's very interesting. But but that's the thing. Is like with this, we have said, okay, everything in society tells me that I shouldn't feel sad ever. I shouldn't mm-hmm. feel uncomfortable ever. And by the way, here's this drink that's going to take away those feelings with the blink of an eye. And so coming out of that, I think... One of the places that like my clients find freedom is just realizing that, oh my gosh, like those feelings are okay. Yeah. I mean, I had a huge aversion to feeling sad ever, <laughs> thinking <laughs> there was something wrong with me, thinking that I wasn't living life the right way, thinking that everybody yeah. else was never feeling sad. And when we just accept that like, these things, these feelings are part of it all, and they're all there to teach us. All our emotions yeah. are there to serve us. Then we can really move move past that. And I think that mindset shift can be one of the biggest things. Um, but equally, I think there's a lot of other things that we can do in terms of just really realizing. I believe that we have this very misconstrued idea of self love in our society that self-love is we will love ourselves if we do something right or if we look a certain way or if we look in the mirror the mirror, the days we feel sexy or not bloated we feel good about ourselves the day we feel bloated we feel bad about ourselves and we it's all either based on external things that have to do with you know how we did on a certain thing in our lives or how we performed here or what we expected our of ourselves and how we measure it up and you know that that's just so not congruent with the divine self-love that we were born with. I mean, I have a one-year-old daughter, mm. and you know, the first time she saw herself in the mirror, it was like, oh, where have you been? <laughs> like this pure joy of loving herself, you know? And and that's what we were all born with. Like that is inside every single one of us. And I know when you've been beat up through all this stuff you know divorce possibly adultery things that say you're not worthy you're not able to be loved like all of these things can really pollute that because you think you've tied this idea of self-worth to something besides just existing like you love you deep at your core just for being you and so I think that's just reframing that and understanding that there's there's nothing all you have to do is just be thankful that you know you're breathing when you're asleep And not killing yourself because you don't forget to breathe or, you know, your heart is beating. And just, Mm. just because you exist is the reason that you are worthy of your own, your own respect and your own love. And when you start to look at it that way, by the way, you also start to really like, oh, okay, this body is doing the best it can to keep me alive and to keep me experiencing this life. So I actually want to consciously do the best I can for my body. And you start to make better choices. And then it becomes like this beautiful upward cycle of things, um, yeah,
0: and, you know. he, and so often we have that backwards, right? So often we're like, "When I have the perfect body, then I'll love myself." When I've lost ten pounds, then I'll love myself. And it's not that if you love yourself first, you will lose ten pounds, right? Because that's actually not what this is about, right? But it's about that when you love and honor yourself, when you love put you the love first, you start making healthier and better choices for yourself. And if ten pounds comes off as a result of that, fine. Right. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it comes on. Right. right. But at that point, it doesn't matter, um, because it's about the love, the self love first. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think that it's just really realizing that that exists inside you. You know, just mm-hmm. just getting quiet enough and and becoming unafraid of being with ourselves. Yeah. I think we're so. I mean, I remember a point in my life where I was just constantly running away from solitude. Uh, whether it was turning on a book on tape or a podcast or making sure I was surrounded by people or just not allowing any solitude because I was so afraid. But if we can push through that and just be in silence with ourselves, even if it hurts, you know, just allow for that. It's so often we discover some really beautiful truths, you know, and we can be really present with ourselves and alcohol numbs that entire experience and the ability to really get to know and love yourself because you're not you're not there with you the other thing that's really served me well is when i feel when I can't find a place to love myself and I can't find a place where I'm happy with myself, or I'm just so frustrated with all these things I've been doing. Perhaps it's the decisions I've been making around alcohol or just that I treated somebody badly and I, I can't get past it. I just have to remind myself that you know, at any moment in my life, I was doing the absolute best I could with the tools that I had. Mm-hmm. And just remember that all of my intentions were always good. Yeah. I've never once in my life had bad intentions for my own life, mm-hmm. ever. It's just that I've been given tools, you know, and alcohol is a tool that as moms, and <laughs> as wives, like we are given like, here it is, guys, this is yep. the thing. Yep. And over and over, we're bombarded with this is the ultimate tool to fix all the stuff. It's like the duct tape for life. And, um, and so we're just using mm-hmm. the tool we had, you know, no matter what that was.
0: Yeah, Um, I want to get into that. I also i i want to i want to i want to put a pin in that because I do want to come back to that whole thing. Um, But I also want to just point out, like you, you made a really great distinction between uh, we're talking about being with your sadness and like that 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 we've so been we've been taught that that's something that there's a pill for that or there's a fix for that. Um, I happen to love um, my pill for that, but there's a difference between sadness and depression. And I think that those of us who suffer from actual clinical depression, as I do, when we start to feel sadness, it, for me, it, it's terrifying because it's such a trigger. It's like, oh, God, here we go. And what I've found since being alcohol free, again, only 81 days, but is that I can feel sad and it's not the same as my clinical depression which I think was really being triggered so much more by alcohol, you know, and I still, I'm on my antidepressant and I can pry that from my cold dead hands. But so now I live sort of this even keel life. And if I feel sad, I feel sad, but I'm not triggered that thinking that I'm spiraling down into my depression anymore. And I think there's an important distinction between sadness and depression, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's really interesting because they're, they're so not the same thing. You know, right. sadness comes and it goes and mm-hmm. depression like doesn't go. It yeah. is with you all the time. And it is, there's no energy in depression. Mm. Depression is just like a hopelessness. that it's not, um, I mean, even anger or even sadness, there's energy in the emotion. You know, you can actually do something with it or about it. Whereas depression, you're almost crippled to do anything for or about it because you are just, you know, at this, the lowest level and uh yeah it's really interesting because i was on um i've been in and out of like on antidepressants my whole life. Mm -hmm. And well, since I was about 17, so not since I was a kid, but I definitely struggled with it as a kid. I just didn't, you know, uh, have like, I wasn't going to any of the doctors or anything. So it wasn't something that I was talking about anyone until I went to college. But in any event, one of the things that ended up happening very similar to your story is that like, it was so beautiful that antidepressants, I think really were of the things that got me stable enough to start looking at my relationship with alcohol Yes, and without them i would have never been stable enough even to do that um about a year and a half it was probably a year to a year and a half after i stopped drinking i started realizing that they were also i started feeling like okay the at the beginning you're, all you're experiencing is the really low lows and just to not feel those low lows because they're so hard to climb back out of was just so in- incredible and such a such a beautiful thing. About a year and a half later, when I really learned to navigate my own emotions, I started realizing that um, they were also preventing me from some of the highest highs. Mm. And so I it was like, okay, I think I, I want to start to look yeah. at it- and see where I can get to. Now, I don't believe that I could have ever gotten off alcohol without antidepressants, but I also don't believe that I could have ever gotten off antidepressants if I would have continued to drink.
0: Yep. I. It's, it's interesting because I went back on meds this past July and that I stopped drinking in November. I don't think it would have been possible. It absolutely would not have been possible. And I question it. Right now, I'm like, I'm not touching anything, <laughs> but I do wonder right. um, if at some point I might, I might be able to do that. Uh, you know, right now I've, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at, but I just, and I, like
1: I said, it was a year and a half, you know, yeah. because I, it's not, it's not a quick thing. I mean, it's, it's really, and it's really, you have to be, be true to you. You know, there's been times in the last year where I've just started weaning my baby and seeing some signs in my life. And I'm like, okay, if this gets worse, I'm going to go back and, you yeah. know, get back on some things. So it's, It's certainly like you have to be just so careful with it. And definitely Mm -hmm. sadness is something that comes, serves, and goes. And depression is something that never leaves.
0: Yep. Amen to that. So let's talk about mommy juice. Let's talk about the messages that we get as moms, as women, about alcohol and wine and marketing and all of that. I remember. uh, Yeah. It's so so interesting.
1: I was, you know, bought into it hook, line, and sinker. I remember giving my husband a card that said, you know, it's not drinking alone if the kids are home. And just this idea that mom play dates, you know, fueled by wine, we're connecting better, we all deserve it. And it was almost like this, this feminist thing in a way. It was like, okay, men were drinking so much more than we were. And, you know, why shouldn't we be? Why shouldn't we Uh be having that much fun? Of course, like that totally makes sense. And, and so we, We hopped on it, you know, and that was also really, we don't, none of us like to say we're really influenced by marketing. Unfortunately, all of us are because that's why they do it. They wouldn't spend so much money, but the alcohol industry actually identified um, women as an underserved market and realized they were consuming significantly less alcohol than men and so decided to really pivot their marketing campaigns towards women and specifically towards moms. And so all sorts of brands started coming out. Mommy Juice is one of those brands. Mommy, t- Mommy's Time Out is another brand of wine. Uh, what is it? Angry Housewife, I believe, is another one. There's just all sorts of kind of cheeky, fun brands of wine that are very specifically targeted at women. Also, all of those placards that we see in our house, you know, those yeah. those didn't originate from some mom being really smart, they really originated from people wanting to sell us more wine. So no good time starts with a salad. That's why there's wine or it's not hangover. It's the wine flu. Or, you know, I always, I always cook with wine. Sometimes I put it in the food, like all of those things. We, we really feel like, oh yeah, we're, we're the ones empowered. We're thinking this, we're, we're doing this ourselves, but it's really being given to us. Unfortunately, I think that the most terrible thing about it all is that, again, you know, we're doing the best we can with the tools we have. We happen to be told the tools for parenting right now include wine. Um, But there's such an insidious subconscious message to that. You know, there was a t-shirt that I saw recently, and it was like, mom's happy hour is two Xanax and a bottle of wine. Mm. And the message with that is that, you know, mom you're not strong enough to do this on your own. You don't have what it takes and you need something else. You need something separate. And we start to believe these things and it's just such BS. I mean, we are so strong enough to do this on our own for millennia. Mothers have mothered and mothers have mothered in much more intense circumstances than we're facing in this moment. And we've been strong enough and we've gotten through it. And it also really breaks my heart that the tribal nature of mothering, you know, Mm -hmm. the joining together and parenting all the kids at once has been hijacked by alcohol. And I mean, that's just such a bummer because that is something that we do need. And that is something that is important. And for it to have been, you know, infiltrated, if you will, by, by drinking and by this message that it's not just each other that we need. It's not just ourselves that we need. No, no, no. Those things aren't sufficient. You actually need this, this, um, you know, fermented liquid in a glass. That's that's what you really need. Right. Uh, it's just really tragic.
0: It is. It is. And I love that you brought that up about the, you know, the fact that you know we we desperately need to, uh, women desperately need from sort of our primal natures to gather together in community, and the fact that all of these aspects of community that we gather together in, whether it's playdates or book clubs or anything like that, has been co opted by the alcohol industry is so sad, truly, yes. truly sad. And you know, the other sad thing about this is that the, you know, the message that, you know, you talked about the messaging and the message that we get is that we can't, we're deficient, we can't parent, we can't get through, you know, the hours of three to nine or three to 7.30, whatever, without alcohol. But the message that we're sending our children is I think, I think even worse. That we can't get through hanging out with our kids without some kind of substance to relax us or uh, take the edge off, right? Yeah. That, that they're so stressful, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Which, you know, sometimes they really are, but that we need, we need to be drugged in mm-hmm. order to parent them, right? It's, it, I mean, it breaks my heart because my son is 13, So I spent all of his childhood drinking Mm -hmm. and that I I, I just, I'm horrified by it. I'm horrified by it.
1: I think it's one of those things, you know, you're definitely doing what you could with the tools that you had. And I think that now, you know, to having the conversations that are really vulnerable and really explaining that you're horrified by it will be so impactful for him. But I think it's Mm -hmm. so true what you say. I mean... It is. We think uh, for some reason, it's crazy. We're surprised by how much our kids know over and over when they start to say their first words, like, I can't believe it. She's talking. I can't believe that she's walking. I can't believe it, this. And it's like, you're, you're we're over and over surprised by how advanced they are. And even in our surprise, they're so much more advanced than we even realize, yeah. right? The, the yep. amount. That they absorb and understand, and and how they take it, especially because when a child sees a parent drunk, and there's lots of studies that have been done on this, um, or even just tipsy, they feel really afraid. Fear is their primary mechanism to deal with that, because even if the parent is a happy-go-lucky, laughing person, just go out sober and spend a little bit of time with somebody who's tipsy and look into their eyes, and you see the vacancy. You can tell that they're not firing on all cylinders. You feel the lack of presence. You feel that. And our kids feel that. And so they feel really disconnected and really afraid. And so many, so many people have written into me and, and said, oh, it was just the moment that things changed for me it was when my kid just asked me if I would stop, you know, oh. can I not do it tonight. Can I just not do it, you know, on her birthday? And then mm-hmm. A lot of times we have this dialogue in our head that says, well, it's not even going to be fun for me and I deserve it. And so, you know, what do they know? I mean, she doesn't get me. She doesn't understand my life and we do it anyway. And I think that that's really just perpetuated by the fact that we don't, we don't see how it feels for them anymore, because we don't, we're just not really in touch with it. And it's so hard after you've been drinking to understand what it looks like when you're drinking. I think back to the experiment that I did, you know, back four or five years ago, where I got drunk in front of a video camera, you cannot understand how you look drunk until you get drunk in front of a video <laughs> just camera. A yeah.
0: like I don't want to not... I don't want to do that. Like I want to do it because I want to see it so badly, but I also don't ever want to do it. I don't want to drink again. So I'm like, I don't want to do it, but oh my God.
1: Yeah. Only do it if you feel like you want to drink again would be my advice, but it is, right. it is absolutely, it, it's amazing. And then we say, wow, that's what we're serving up for our kids when we're kissing them goodnight. You know, I remember my um. son, Came up to me and I asked him to sit on my lap. He's like, Oh, I don't want to. You smell bad and your lips are purple. You mm-hmm. know, and he was four years old. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just incredible. And yeah, and again, the, we're, we don't know. We don't know what we don't know until we know it, right?
0: Yep. And then once we know it, you know, you can't unsee it. You can't right. unring that bell. Just really quickly, because uh, I think it's important. What about all those studies that say that alcohol is good for us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have done a bunch of sort of dissecting of some of those studies on my YouTube channel, but pretty much definitively, (laughs) those studies have been not necessarily taken out of context as much as certain aspects pulled out without the bigger picture. So I guess... in in a way that is taken out of context, we can use one that we all know, which is uh, this idea that red wine is good for the heart, right? So that's been just common knowledge since the beginning of whenever red wine is good for the heart, of course, how can it be bad for us? Um, And there's a few studies that have been done recently that, and uh, one of the things that I will say is if uh, the science of social sharing really dictates that we're going to share stuff that is in line with our existing beliefs. So if we're drinking red wine and we say, see something that red wine is good for the heart, that makes us feel good. It confirms our beliefs. It's called confirmation bias and we're going to share it. Also that's in line with kind of our beliefs of our friends. So it makes us um, seem smarter. It makes us seem like, oh yeah, she's cool. She's hip. She's sharing that makes them feel good. And so we're not going to necessarily share something that goes completely against the grain. So when studies come out, disproving that fact those don't get shared so there's some interesting studies done on how often studies get shared Mm. and it's like a hundred to one um where things get shared like uh, red wine is equivalent to a half hour in the gym or prevents dementia or helps you live longer all of these things just get shared rampantly and since we live in this headline culture we don't read past the headlines very often either so we just continue to confirm these ideas um I've looked into multiple of these studies, and over and over again, there is something that is just a really erroneous fact in them, and I'll share one with you. But often the scientists who have done the study had done it for other reasons, and now that it's been like shared in this way, they are very upset because they never intended to be contributing to this sort of problem. But for example, the one where um, red wine is good for your heart, it was because of a chemical called resveratrol. And that chemical can be found in all sorts of other places like blackberries or grape juice or things like that. But um, they had done a study in mice that resveratrol helped to reduce, I forget what it was. If it was uh, blood pressure or something like that, so they'd done this study in mice, and it did. It helped in mice for them, their hearts to be healthier. And so they published all of these studies about red wine being a source of resveratrol was good for your heart. They decided to follow up on a study in humans, which they did in a region of Italy where they have very high diets in resveratrol and in red wine, and they studied these these people for over a decade to see if um, there was any heart health correlations. And there was absolutely none. And so they mm. actually published a study saying it was really interesting. We got very excited about what had happened in the mice. It did not translate into human consumption. And resveratrol is definitively not good for your heart. It doesn't help heart health. But that study, of course, you've never heard of it because it's never yep. been shared.
0: <laughs> and there's so many. Because it doesn't <coughs> confirm what we want it, what we want confirmed, right. right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. The one, I mean, just really quickly about mm-hmm. alcohol helping you live longer. It was very interesting because it was done. Oh, that's right. Um, on a very small population, so it was like 322 people, and they broke them up into um, heavy drinkers, moderate drinkers, and non-drinkers. And they followed these people for 20 years. This was called the hoolahan Study. And over the 20 years, they saw how many people died. They started when they were 50, and they ended when they were 70, and they saw how many people died. And there was a slightly higher percentage of the non-drinkers that died in the 20 years. And so they d- concluded, well, the highest percentage was of heavy drinkers that died And then the lowest percentage was of moderate and the middle was of non-drinkers. And so they concluded that moderate drinking uh, led to longevity. Now, what they didn't (laughs) disclose, (laughs) number one, they didn't disclose the cause of death. So that's... We can put that aside. But the other thing, which the scientists said in the study that never made it into any of the articles, was that the non drinkers were non drinkers often because of other health problems that precluded them from drinking, obesity, medications they were on, or things that did not allow them to drink, or primarily they were non drinkers because they had had severe alcohol problems in their past and they were now sober. So. <laughs>
0: So that, that study that like, I mean, it's been, it flies around the internet all the time and, and it's completely flawed. And, and, and it's, it's so interesting is that, you know, most scientific studies deal with correlation versus causation, right? Right. And yet this is clearly a correlative uh, thing rather rather than causal. There's no evidence whatsoever to support the fact that it's causal.
1: No. Not at all, and yet we and walk
0: around quoting it.
1: And again, the scientists who did the studies did not do the studies for these reasons. These right. these things were pulled out of the studies, and they are very much to their chagrin that it's even being, you know, discussed or used in this way.
0: Yeah, so fascinating, so enlightening. Annie, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. Is there any last? Are there any last minute words that you want to leave people with, or anything that you? want people to know?
1: I think that if you're, you know, if you're in the place where you've heard some of this stuff and it's actually causing you more stress than anything else, I would, I would say to count that as a really good thing. Um, Awareness can be very painful, you know, and awareness is often painful, but you can't really solve a problem you don't know you have. And I'd also just say that like, this is not your fault. You know, you didn't get in here because of anything that was sort of wrong with you or any choices that you made out of malintent. You got into whatever place you're at right now because there's just been this series of external influences. And that's combined with the fact that alcohol is literally addictive to human beings because we're made up of blood, flesh, and bone and for no other reason. So just really take heart in knowing that and also take heart in knowing that like the solution is not painful. It's not necessarily a lifetime of meetings or Mm -hmm. even necessarily 100% abstinence. That's not not what we need to be talking about here. We don't need to be talking about all the, it's actually a life that's really, really empowered and really freeing and has a lot more joy than you even thought possible because of how much alcohol has been dampening your joy. So even if you can't imagine a life different or you can't imagine getting through even tonight without that glass of wine, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go too hard on yourself. I just really start to understand that you know it isn't, it isn't your fault and there is absolutely a way out that is not painful.
0: Yeah, I I would totally uh, agree with that and back that up cuz I I didn't think that I could. I was like, what? Never drink again? What? What? Um and now I I can't imagine drinking, but who knows, right? I I mean, I really sort of learned the definition of one day at a time when I when I began this, and it began with reading uh, your book. So I strongly, highly recommend that to everybody. We'll have links in the show notes to everything. Um, I started out with this naked mind, and he has a new book out called The Alcohol Experiment, which takes you day by day um, through. And you have the free alcohol experiment out there, which you can people can go through. We'll put all the links, <laughs> all the links in the show notes. It's true. It doesn't, when you start to learn about it, again, you can't unring that bell. And it becomes less about deprivation and more about wanting more for life is what I've found. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Annie, thank you so much for coming on and talking to my people. Thank you for the work that you do. It, it's truly life-changing and transformative. It has been for me. And I'm so, so grateful that you yeah. do what you do.
1: Thank you. You too, Kate. I'm really, I love what you're doing and I just really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Annie. Thanks for listening to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. You can find me over at kateanthony.com and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.